might be a Viking or a Saxon or a Roman, but tell me, do you like them? Would you sex them? Would you bone them? Would you go to bed with King Ethelred? Would you bonk William the Conqueror up in the sheets with Samuel Pepys? Mussolini was a meanie, led a fascist insurrection, but does he make you creamy? Does he give you an erection? Would you pork Richard the Duke of York? Does a boner start when you think of Bonaparte? Are you sexually aroused at the thought of Pol Pot? Historical hot or not? Hello and welcome to Historical Hot or Not, the history podcast that looks at the life and times of people from history and says, yes, but would you? If you are naughty for Saint Nick, horny for King Herod, or kinky for uncompassionate innkeepers, then this is the sexy, festive podcast for you. I am Aid McCaffrey, I am not a historian, and this is... Catherine Mather, and I am also not a historian. But we are comedians who are horny for history, and uh, we are going to be rating some of history's greats, and uh, whether we would bang them or not, eh? Uh, happy Christmas. Happy Bangmas, Kath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who will you be? banging this christmas well i'll be with my family so it'll just be one massive incestuous gangbang i think okay that's what well, is your wife on board or uh well i hope she is because she's the only one i'm really looking forward to banging really <laughs> certainly not looking forward to banging my three brothers yeah i've met i've met one of them and it, lovely man wouldn't bang him <laughs> oh damning <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well, damning come on i don't think he'd bang me either to be honest i think he would he'd bang literally anything that moves calf really which is Partly why he'd be so offended by this line of attack you, you've, you've mounted. Wow, I didn't get that vibe from him, but I mean, I, I, I'm terrible at reading people. Kath and I have been told there is no room in the podcast studio, so we've had to record today's episode in a barn. We've set up the mics in a trough, also known as a manger, and we are going to birth our historical assessment right here, surrounded by farmyard animals and three wise historians, Mary Beard, Hallie Rubenhold, and Dominic Sandbrook, while the North Star looks down on us from above. And by North Star, I mean the ring light we've clipped to our laptops. <laughs> a side note, Mary Beard, Halle Rubenhold and Dominic Sandbrook are not in the studio with us. Uh, if they were, we'd have made a much bigger song and dance about it. Mary Beard, Halle Rubenhold and Dominic Sandbrook, if you want to come on together separately, but crucially for free, <laughs> Please get in touch at Hot Not Pod on any of the social, the major social medias. I'd say that we're not making money from this, but if anything, it's costing us money to make this. <laughs> what we're saying is we need the charity of more famous historians, is, is, is what we're getting at. Mary, Harley, Dominic, bring us your gold, frankincense and myrrh, and by that I mean Zoom availability. Mm-hmm. And listeners. <laughs> Indeed. Kath, what are you doing for Christmas? I assume it's your traditional northern poorhouse Christmas. Just you and the spinning jenny, praying for a second slop of festive gruel. Oh, please, sir, can I have some more? Uh, yeah, that's basically it. Uh, <laughs> if you see my Christmases, uh, gonna <laughs> gonna head north, uh, spend it with the family. What we all do is we all sleep in one room together. There's one bed, uh, and it's a single. And the bed is also the toilet. It is, yes, yeah. It's really cold. Uh, might get a new pair of pajamas out of it. Who knows? How will you be? celebrating god's favorite day i will do what i do every christmas which is i'll be playing knockout historical hot or not with my family uh, where we assess the hotness or notness of people who died on a given date we're actually doing december the 25th this year so we'll be judging the hotness of pope adrian the first 
Saint Anastasia, Peter the Venerable, Emperor Taisho, and George Michael. You just sound like the clear winner, but um, my kink is venerableness. <laughs> so I think uh, Peter might take it. I forgot that he died on Christmas Day. I thought my mum was joking when she told me. Honestly, I was in bed as a child, just in bed asleep. Well, not asleep, but going to sleep. She just opened the door and was like, George Michael's dead. No, no. <laughs> okay, okay. Happy Christmas. Half of Wham has cacked it. No. He is buried in Highgate Cemetery, uh, which is my happy place. and um, But under his Greek name, and nobody knows... Well, my my old housemate knew where he was and took me there. Well, I mean, you could probably figure it out if it's uh, like, here lies John Smith, here, here lies Lucy Farrow, here lies Georgios Stephanopoulos. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to piss off a tour guide, go to Highgate Cemetery, ask where George Michael is. I reckon the tour guides there probably like it because for many years they've had to deal with where's Karl Marx, to which the answer is... You won't fucking miss it, seriously. No. <laughs> or less popular, where's Jeremy Beadle buried? So I think George Michael's mixing it up for them. I don't know. I went on one of those tours and asked where George Michael was and they didn't like it. So <laughs> to be fair, it was uh, me and friend of the podcast, Rachel Fairburn, who went on that tour. He, the tour guide, got annoyed with her for knowing too much. He accused her of having been on the tour before and just giving all the right answers. And uh, he hated us both <laughs> collectively because we were giggling too much. Which, I mean, to be fair, it's a graveyard. It's quite sad, that, because my experience of doing that tour was the tour guides, because they were volunteers. Yeah. You got the passion of a volunteer. Mm. Like, they seemed really into it. Oh, yeah, he was. That's why he was pissed that we were laughing. <laughs> I mean, if you want to uh, find his grave, his name is Georgios Kyriakos Panayato, and he died in 2016, 25th of December. So I don't think it'd be that hard to find. No, but there's a lot of graves, Aiden. It'd be amusing if he'd had a similarly elaborate grave to Karl Marx and there was just <laughs> right in the middle of the grounds a massive sculpture, unmistakably, of George Michael's head with the 1984 careless whisper quiff. And people were asking, where's George Michael buried? And like, we can't tell you. <laughs> Is it by that massive bust of George Michael's head over there? We really can't say, sorry. There are four enormous letters underneath the bust, <laughs> W, H, A, and M. I like the idea of, he's actually a crucified image of Michael. And the word wham is written where I-N-R-I would be written <laughs> for, on, on, a, <laughs> on a Jesus crucifix. <laughs> King of the pop. He really was. R.I.P., George. <laughs> Shall we uh, blow this festive mother out of the water? I think we should do. Uh, first, though, we do need to tell the listeners the format of the podcast, don't we? Because, I mean, there might be new listeners, in which case, hi, guys. Welcome to the gutter. Uh, there might be returning listeners who only listen for this bit and then switch off, in which case, that's fine, too. We'll take your listens. Give us a like. It's not always this filthy. So hang on, I misspoke. Yeah, sorry, it's always this filthy. <laughs> This is a uh, history podcast uh, in which the theme is we look at the life and times of dead people from history. We look at their life, everything they did. We look at their face. And then at the end, we assess everything and we say whether or not we'd have sex with them. If they are successful in appealing to our horniness, these people will end up on the bio tap that history, along with other such historical 
luminaries as Joseph II of Austria, Lord Byron, Anita Berber, Dorothy Levitt. Turin Shroud. Spoiler alert for the bonus feed there, but yeah, uh, <laughs> the Turin Shroud is on there. Kath said she'd rub herself on that. And that's festive as well, because that's to do with Christ. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. Sexy people from history, of which Christ was absolutely one of them. Yeah, he was ripped, wasn't he? Every depiction on the cross, abs. Ab city. Mm, I bet he didn't have abs. But he is covered in a lot of blood, but I think it's a bit like how in, at the end of Blade Runner 2049, Ryan Gosling is like covered in blood, but na- bathed in neon. And you think, still would. Mm-hmm. I don't care how many stigmatis he's got. Christ is still getting it. So, I mean, we begin uh, the episode, each and every one, with a superficial assessment uh, of the, the person that we'll be discussing each week. Um, they are all handily on the e dating app, the historical dating app. What I've done is sent the profile picture of today's subject to Aidan. Today we will be discussing Charles. He's 58 and he's from Portsmouth. So, Charles from Portsmouth, um, looking at a photo of him. He's dressed seemingly in early 19th century attire. Mm-hmm. Looks to have a big cravat. I'm looking at a picture of a young man. He's got yep. quite long hair. It's combed over and then it's sort of quite big and bushy at the sides. He has his hand resting, pressing into some paper, but he's looking out of an open window into the distance, mm. pensive, mm. thinking, as if to say, I'm an intellectual man. I think this is a good looking guy. Suave, he's got a good face and giving off a lot of intelligence. Yeah, I think he's in his 20s here, uh, but he, his look, I mean, he's got the round face that they all seem to have of this time, <laughs> don't they? I assume that they rounded people's faces off a bit because it must have been a fashionable look or whatever. <laughs> when they were born, they would chisel off any hard angles from the uh, skeletal frame of the face to yeah. create this look that we're seeing now. Yeah. Uh, oh, God, have you heard about that surgery that people are having where they're removing the cheek fat? No. Yeah, they look really gaunt. So, like, I think Miley oh, Cyrus God. has had it, which is a shame because oh. she's beautiful. But, yeah, that's gone forever then. There's... I think this is true of most people who have bizarre cosmetic surgery almost always don't need it. <laughs> well, yeah, that is true, yeah. They usually are already beautiful and then they've just bought into some ludicrous beauty standard. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't judge people for having plastic surgery but also you know just make sure you're having it done for the right reasons just from this picture then uh Aiden, which will be uh available to the listeners at home would you yes i would yeah yeah i think i would too actually i want to be done literary style yeah his hair looks quite modern doesn't it in that picture it looks like he'll be in a boy band it does have harry styles vibes and then That's it's exactly quite, who I was thinking. Yeah, it's got quite it's quite thick and voluminous mm. on the sides. Slicked back on top. So, shall we learn a little bit about our friend here, Charles? Charlie? Charles? Charles? <sighs> I would. Who could it be? A, a Christmas Charlie? Who could you possibly have picked? I honestly don't know, and it's certainly not written in the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Born on the 7th of February 1812 in Portsmouth, Charles John Huffham Dickens was the second of eight children. 
His father, John Dickens, was a Neville clerk who dreamed of being rich. Don't we all, John? And his mother, Elizabeth Barrow, aspired to be a teacher, but was ultimately a woman. <laughs> Which back then was enough. It was enough. That's all you needed to be. <laughs> When Charles was four years old, they moved to Chatham in Kent, which really was a shame, but the Dickens kids loved it and they could explore the countryside. Their parents saw the joy that this brought them, and six years later, in 1822, they decided to move to Camden Town. <laughs> well, now it's full of vegan cereal cafes, punks begging for drink money, and one of the worst depictions of Amy Winehouse I've ever seen in bronze. At the time, it was a very poor and deprived area. At the time, the Amy Winehouse statue was made out of coal. But it just hasn't got much better. No. They're still using the wrong stuff. Yeah. I, she was so young, wasn't she, Amy, when she died? I really feel... 28. 27. Yes. 27. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, the 28 Club. Or as I call it, the 20s Club. Just people dying in the 20s. <laughs> I, um, I've missed it now. If you, could have, <laughs> if you could have been successful to the point that people would miss you, that weren't just your immediate family maybe some of your friends, but you had to die at 27, would you take that? No, because I, uh, I would have missed the Doctor Who's 60th anniversary special. <laughs> in, in fact, in a really saddening thing, I've just it's just occurred to me, I would also have missed the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think, no. Yeah, and, you, and your wife? You probably wouldn't have met your wife. For the record, if she's listening... That goes without saying. That that would be the thing I was most concerned about. Not the Doctor Who fiftieth and sixtieth anniversary specials. Mm. My dear, my dearest loving wife. Well, I would never have had the joy of working for the NHS had I died at twenty-seven. Yeah, I really am grateful. <laughs> you sound it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Charles was a very sickly child. He was prone to spasms, which meant that instead of playing sports, he read books like a nerd. His father, John, had a penchant for living beyond his means. I'd imagine that he's the kind of person supporting tax cuts for Starbucks whilst living in a bedsit because he fully believes that he'd be in the, that tax bracket one day. Those people confuse me. Despite all evidence suggesting otherwise. Like, neither you nor any of your family have been wealthy. Why... Are you behaving like your Bezos? <laughs> it's like a, I read an article that described Republicans in America as leading a reverse French Revolution, <laughs> marching up, <laughs> going to the streets to protest, to give more power to the uh, established rich people. Cutting their own heads off. Yeah. <laughs> Despite their neck holes. Yes. <laughs> In 1824, when Charles was 12 years old, his father was sent to Marshall C. Debtors Prison in Southwark because he owed a baker, James Kerr, £40 and 10 shillings, which is £2,326 in today's money. How much fucking bread? (laughs) Bread is fattening. Mm. Consider it a treat. He'd be the kind of person going around Borough Market just asking for two of everything in bread ahead. (laughs) What, those donuts are £6 each? Yeah, fuck it, I'll have a dozen. In the first half of the 19th century, the uh, wheat-only diet was quite a big thing going on. <laughs> and he... <laughs> oh, it was, it was a sort of like a equivalent of the 5-2 diet now, in which you spend the first five days eating wheat and the second two days also eating wheat. Mm-hmm, exclusively. I think I would struggle to spend... Forty pounds, let alone two thousand three hundred and twenty-six pounds, <laughs> on bread and baked goods. 
I'm not saying I couldn't, but I just—I mean, we don't know the time oh, yeah, frame, like, do we? If challenged in a sort of Brewster's bread situation, where you had thirty days to just fucking pig out on as much <laughs> on as much donuts as possible. Yeah, to you know, be as fair, much warb- get as much Warburton's in your bed. I'm sure we could all do it. Yeah, as well. I, I forgot I'd not factored this in. He had eight kids, so that's a family of ten. Although a couple of them kids died in infancy, so. Do you reckon when they did die in infancy? Do you reckon he said to Mrs. Dickens, "Good news, the bread bill's going down." <laughs> I won't be in prison for too long. <laughs> This meant that Charles had to leave school and get a job at Warren's Blacking Factory by what is now Charing Cross Station as a boot blacker, which is the most Victorian job I have ever heard of. And I'm also glad that's what it was, because when you said a blacking factory, <laughs> I just thought people were quite racist back then. Uh-huh. You know, have they industrialised blackface there? But no, no, <laughs> it's fine. They're just cleaning shoes. It's like the the Netherlands at Christmas in here. I don't get that. What's that a reference to? Black Pete, don't they? Oh, yes. And they're like, don't worry, it's not racist. And you're like, I, but it is. <laughs> it kind of, sort of is a bit though, isn't it? Yeah. Usually things that aren't racist don't have to have the words, it's not racist, <laughs> said about them. Yes, and they don't usually have the prefix black. No, and they don't black up. It's not racist, it's just song and dance in which... Loads of white people have got boot polish on their face. What? It's not it? racist. <laughs> it sounds racist. Uh, talking of boot polish, it was Charles's job to label pots of blacking or boot polish. He earned six shillings a week, which, according to nationalarchives.gov, is equivalent to roughly £17.23. The factory was run down and full of rodents, much like any rental property in the area today. <laughs> That's not even exaggerated satire. That's no. the that's the depressing thing about that. That's just a statement of fact. It is, yeah. I have recently left London and my home was run down and full of rodents. <laughs> and I was paying a damn sight more than six shillings a week to be there. I used to go to the Trocadero Cinema in London when I lived there, right in the middle of Soho. Mm-hmm. And I would rate all the films out of five, but it would be how many mice I saw in the screening. <laughs> so it's like Avatar. Four mice out of five. La La Land. Great film, but only one, because I only saw one mouse mouse do it during that. Is that to do with the number of mice that were there, or how captivate, captivating the film was that you didn't notice the mice? <laughs> that's, a good, <laughs> that's actually a good good point, yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, in theory, if, if, if La La Land was as bloody good as everyone says it was, I wouldn't have been distracted by the uh, family of mice eating a kernel of popcorn next to me (laughs) john's wife elizabeth so that is charles's mum and dad elizabeth had to join her husband in debtor's prison with their youngest four children what yeah which can you like the cost of incarceration of one person let alone six what year is this 1824 right this because we know this from the robert peel episode that we just did Mm mm-hmm this is at the point before they started paying jailers, which means they, I think they would have had to pay for their own incarceration which, <laughs> and their you... own children's incarceration, effectively. And you're in debtor's prison. So they've removed your ability to raise funds by working <laughs> and put you in a prison 
that costs you to be there and then your men appear to get out? I, I don't understand. But I guess it doesn't have to make sense, does it? Age 12, Charles had to lodge with a family friend called Elizabeth Roylance, whom he described as a reduced, impoverished old lady at 112 College Place in Camden Town. How do you think that you would get on with moving out age 12? Do you reckon it would be like a pussy palace or do you think that you would (laughs) just be frightened and crying all the time? I think I'd enjoy moving out on my own slightly more than I would probably enjoy being in debtor's prison as a 12-year-old. Yeah, I think what had happened was Charles ended up losing his job at the Blacking factory for whatever reason, a disagreement, and then his mum managed to get him the job back and he never forgave his mum for sending him back. But I would argue you're literally you're having to raise money to get your family out of prison and it's quite selfish to be pissed off at your mum for doing the only thing that she could do <laughs> to save six people in a society that is not really allowing women much of an option in the kind of things they could do to raise money yeah and she had four well eight children but four to immediately care for it's mad what was expected of children back then i've been Mm. watching the john adams miniseries yeah and this is true to life john adams sends his 14 year old son to St. Petersburg alone. Oh my God. <laughs> this is an Amer- yeah, this is an American. He sends his son to St. Petersburg to do a little sort of clerkship. Right. Because he's like, this will be very good for you, John Quincy. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Now, John Quincy Adams did grow up to be a president of America and a genuinely esteemed anti-slavery advocate. So look, maybe they had the right idea back then. Mm-hmm. Kids today are two coddles. Like, would you grow up? getting sent to St. Petersburg, having to move out, manage your money and work in a factory at 12. You'd just grow up, wouldn't you? You would be an adult mentally and you would be treated as an adult physically. Like, if you aren't given the option to piss about like we were at 12. But 12-year-olds, there's no guarantee that they have a single solitary hair on their ball. So you're talking about forcing them into emotional maturity when... They may have started puberty, but it's absolutely no guarantee. Mm. Another funny thing about the John Adams thing is he goes, his very visibly prepubescent child is looking quite scared about this prospect of going to St. Petersburg by himself. Yeah. And he goes, oh, father, will it will it be cold in St. Petersburg? And the dad says, not for a Massachusetts man. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure as cold as Massachusetts is that St. Petersburg will be fucking colder. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 100%. But that's what Americans are like, isn't it? Oh, you don't know weather till you've been to insert state here. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I went to New York in autumn Mm. and I couldn't, I I actually physically couldn't comprehend how cold it is. And it was only like two or three degrees, but their two or three degrees is like the ice age has returned. Okay. It's a different kind of cold. It's the unbroken wind from the Atlantic. I think that's what it is. Right. Got it's, just, it's just hitting you in all those New York streets that are just straight lines for like um, three miles. Mm-hmm. Are just wind tunnels channeling the frost from the North Sea directly into the most sensitive part of your scrotum. <laughs> Why did he have your knob out? You know, you're in New York. You've got to live the dream. Yeah. Sorry, not your knob, just your ball sack. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so luckily, a few months later, in 1825, Charles's grandmother, Elizabeth Dickens, died. Hey! And he was permitted to go back to school after his father got out of debtor's prison following the family inheritance, which is the secret ingredient to every article about how a 20-something managed to get on the property ladder in a leafy suburb of Highgate. <laughs> Just stop eating avocado on toast, Kath. Yeah, what's your problem? <laughs> it's a joke, isn't it? Was it Kirsty Olsop who was like, well, I bought a house in London at 21. Oh, your father's oh. a fucking lord. Oh, it's just so, I hate this small C conservative and indeed big C conservative thinking about what well, this did me well. And it's like, yes, but not everyone's the same as you. What's mm. what, This total inability to step out of their own experience for a second and imagine what it might just maybe be like for someone else. Mm. God, it's maddening. And what might have happened to house prices in the last 30 years? My friend's dad bought a house in Harrogate, yeah. lovely leafy Harrogate, for £10,000 in 1978. <laughs> and this generation looking at us and going, well, if you weren't spending £3 cappuccinos every six seconds, well, maybe you'd be able to bloody afford a house. The thing is, that ten grand was a lot of money in the, in the 70s, but it wasn't unreachable. I think that's the difference, isn't it? And the fact that they have these plush... Yeah, these plush retirements where they can go on holiday four times a year. Mm -hmm. And they think that's just normal and that mm. we'll have that. So, no, but that's the point. We won't. <laughs> I don't think you're comprehending how... I'm not saying, you know, it's not that they didn't work hard, that generation. It's just they were so lucky. Yeah. They were so lucky to be born when they were. And I'm happy for them. I just, I want a bit of that too, please. <laughs> I I adore, I was listening to the radio, one of the BBCs, I want to say maybe Radio 4, can't remember, the other day, it was on in the background, doing a bit of cleaning, and uh, there was a guy trying to tell this story of poverty, and he was like, all I had was the money to put petrol into my Mercedes. <laughs> you poor soul. <laughs> <laughs> all I had was some diamond-studded boots and fucking shit loads of equity i had to walk every day several feet to my computer to access my trust fund yeah <laughs> anyway talking of poor souls charles when he got out of uh out of work which he did for about i think it was max a year this time at the Blacking Factory. He wasn't there a very long time, but it traumatised him forever. That time spent in the factory, he found it quite degrading and it, that became his sort of touch on the working classes, if you see what I mean. Uh, and that's where a lot of his inspiration came from. And I can imagine that he would very much be like that person who, you know, was like, went on a holiday and had to rough it a bit in uh, in Nepal, everything from then on was well. When I was in Nepal for a year, you know, you're like, oh fuck off, mate. It, <laughs> it, like that is somebody's life forever, and you did it for like a year, and it was too much. Not that I'm saying it was easy. Uh, I'm just saying I think he was a bit of a pussy about it. If we're being honest, how, how old was he when this happened? Twelve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking weakling. I know, right? Can't handle 12 months of hard labour when he is exactly that same number of years old. He's putting labels on boot polish. He wasn't a <laughs> chimney sweep. That's true, fair enough. 
Uh, anyway, he attended Wellington House Academy, which was a private school uh, because all schools were private because children weren't required to go to school until around the 1880s. The school doesn't exist anymore, but the site is just a stone's throw away from Coco Nightclub by Mornington Crescent. The last time I was there, I was served shots by a nun on roller skates, and I imagine it was very much the same in Dickens' day. <laughs> the headmaster of Wellington House Academy was William Jones, who became the inspiration for Mr. Creakle in David Copperfield. I haven't read that book, but the two common descriptives used for William Jones are strict and sadistic. How would you like to be remembered in two words? Fascistic <laughs> and... <laughs> But witty. Hmm. Always could spin a good yarn, <laughs> but liked to use violence to enforce his preferred policies. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd say that's fair. What about you? Grumpy and sarcastic. You can quit today. You've yep. done it. I'm there. Your legacy is assured. It's all I've got. <laughs> I've got the gravestone ready and I've, al- I've already chiselled those two adjectives into it. Yeah. You're done. <laughs> Boom. Yes. Um. Unfortunately for Charlie, his father was really, really bad at money, uh, as most people who aspire to be rich are. Uh, And by 15, Charles had to leave school again to return to the workforce. Uh, This time, he was an office boy. It was here that he began doing freelance reporting. And within a few years, he was reporting for two major newspapers. And I absolutely adore that in the olden times, you could just go into these sought after jobs you know, just fall into reporting. Like, no internship, no degree. The the only qualification is that you have access to a pen. <laughs> um, you know, like how Hunter S. Thompson, he would just get, like, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. So that I have got a suitcase of drugs and I'm being paid to write something. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. doing that now? I mean, I'm sure if you go into some newspaper offices... It's probably not that much different in terms of the um, words written to drugs taken. (laughs) Are you talking about vice? (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely reckon I'm talking about most newspaper offices. And I'm not even distinguishing necessarily between, say, The Sun and The Guardian. I reckon you go into some of those toilets and you were to do a swab. It would look like a Colombian drug dealer's bathroom is what I'm getting at. Yeah, but again, true of most workplaces in London. True. Apparently, there's quite a lot of cork in the River Thames. Oh, really? People piss it out. I didn't understand at first. I was like, "What? why are people just emptying bags of cork into the River Thames of a weekend? <laughs> you know, if a whale shows up in the Thames, the queen get the, the, the king gets access to it. Do you reckon that's why? So they can get access to the Charlie that it mm. might be carrying about its person? Yeah, if you eat the meat, it's consumed so much cocaine that you get high. <laughs> So under the pseudonym Boz, which was a family nickname, Charles began submitting sketches to magazines and in 1833 his first, called A Dinner at Poplar Walk, was published in London's monthly magazine. He went on to become a magazine editor for such classics as Household Words and All the Year Round. In 1836 his first book was published. Aidan, do you want to guess which book it was? Shit, I think I know this. Hmm. Am I right in thinking it was a biggie? I'm not going to give you any uh, any hints here. You've got to do this all on your own, I'm afraid, friend. I think it was David Copperfield, wasn't it? It was, of course. Sketches by Boz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm uh. fairly sure that we have seen at Edinburgh Fringe. 
Um, <laughs> no, we saw sketches by Boz Cole on the musical. Ah, oh, of course, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> in, th- in that same year, on the 2nd of April, 1836, he married the Scottish Catherine Hogarth, who was the daughter of George Hogarth, who was editor of the Evening Chronicle, which was the first newspaper to break the news of US independence in their August 1776 edition, which is silly because it happened in July. <laughs> In the 15-year period between 1837 and 1852, Catherine and Charles had 10 children, which I'm sure Catherine's fanny was not at all happy about. (laughs) I'm going to give you a quick line on each of these 10 children, because good God. (laughs) So, number one, we've got Charles Dickens Jr. He was a banker who went bankrupt, wrote some reference books and died at 59. Then we've got Mary Dickens, a woman who wrote a book called My Father As I Recall Him, which I assume was about Charles Dickens. Then we have Kate Dickens, who was nicknamed Lucifer Box in the family. What? Yep, due to her fiery temper. uh, And she was the only one to side with her mother and stand up to her father with his bad behaviour that is to come. Spoilers. Lucifer Box sounds rude, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds like something a bitter male divorcee would nickname his ex-wife's vagina. Mm-hmm. Don't mm. miss the old Lucifer box. Yeah. Kind of thing. Like sort of low-level aggrieved misogyny. Yeah. And I don't know that it wasn't misogyny then, but just not maybe vaginal. Well, did you? if she's calling out her dad's bad behaviour and then she's getting the nickname Lucifer box, that strikes me as, that's misogynistic, surely? Yeah, I think that is what misogyny is. It? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next, we've got Walter Dickens, who is a lieutenant in the morally sound East India Company, who died of an aortic aneurysm. We've got Francis Dickens, nicknamed Chicken Stalker. He worked for the Bengal Mounted Police and then Canada's Northwest Mounted Police. We've got Alfred Dickens. He left a bunch of debt behind him, age 20, and moved to Australia. Classic. We've got Sidney Dickens. He was in the Navy and died in debt, age 25, trying to get home for sick leave. Why are so many kids dying in debt? Well, it seems to be the family thing, doesn't it? Too much avocado on toast. I think that's what's going on here. They should have cancelled their Netflix subscription, shouldn't they? To be fair, the top-end Netflix subscription where it's like multiple account sharing plus full 4K streaming. It's quite expensive. It is quite expensive, you're right. That's why I couldn't get on the housing ladder for so long. (laughs) Because I wanted to watch Blade Runner 2049 in the full 2180p. Mm -hmm. Both in my living room and bedroom simultaneously. Exactly. And at my neighbour's house. Uh, Henry Dickens, he was probably the most successful of... Charles's children and Catherine's children, lest we forget. He had a successful career in law as a barrister and he was knighted in 1922. Next, we've got Dora Dickens. She died aged eight months in 1851. Presumably, she didn't have any time to accrue any debt. I mean, you said 10. It sounds like you've named about 17 already. (laughs) We're on the last one now, don't worry. Uh, Edward Dickens, whose nickname was Plawn. Uh, he moved to Australia to be with his brother and ended up as an MP in New South Wales. My dad, uh, as I've said before in this podcast, he had nine brothers and sisters. Uh, his parents had ten children. Pick a number between one and ten. Which was your dad? I'm going to say five. Which one was five? Francis Dickens, Chicken Stalker. <laughs> yeah, that's 
That's all pops. Yeah, work for the Mounties. <laughs> Chasing uh, poultry in uh, the Rocky Mountains. Good old pops. You know what he's like. Oh. <laughs> in 1842, Charles and his wife Catherine went to the United States for a five-month lecture tour, uh, which sounds awful. You could not pay me enough to be on a five-month lecture tour. There we go. Uh, biographer J.B. Priestley wrote that during the tour, Dickens enjoyed the greatest welcome that probably any visitor to America ever had. He was anti-slavery and his talks sold out quickly. They'd flock around me as if I were an idol, bragged Dickens. So was he already quite successful by this point? Yeah, so people knew about his books and he'd been a news reporter and stuff. So people knew who he was. I'm guessing he's only touring the north of... America then, if he's being welcomed as some anti-slavery hero. Yeah, props. <laughs> I can't I can't see him going south. I decided to Google Charles Dickens in America. So in New York, Boston, uh, New Haven. Yeah, this is all very, very far north. Massachusetts, where cold men live. Roosevelt Island, which I think is New York. Yeah, Pennsylvania. It's all very northern. Oh, he does go to Richmond, Virginia. Oh, here we go. So I, I'm actually reading about a programme called Dickens in America presented by Miriam Margulies. Dickens visited Richmond in the hopes of understanding the South's endorsement of slavery. Miriam meets Southern journalists and reverends and is confronted by their opinions. So that was Miriam, not Charles. Uh, yeah, well, both, <laughs> effectively, because she's going to the places that he went. Okay, and she is learning why slavery is bad. Because <laughs> until this point, very pro-slavery. It was our friend Miriam. I like the idea that this programme goes badly wrong. And Miriam Margulies comes <laughs> out of it like, I, I think I'm pro-slavery. <laughs> These oh. descendants of slave owners actually convinced me. I know I'm as shocked as you guys were. <laughs> that would be quite the show, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Miriam Margulies, an anti-13th Amendment shocker. <laughs> you know the classic Christmas Carol? How long do you think it took Dickens to write it? This is the challenge. So I've got to go really small or big, haven't I? Mm -hmm. It's either going to be it took him 15 years, which I don't think it would have done, no. or he like wrote it during a particularly long toilet trip. <laughs> I'm going to go for a particularly long toilet trip. You know, I'm going to say it took him two shits to write Christmas Carol. You're right, yeah. Uh... <laughs> exactly two shits. Well, because... Um... Obviously, man shits take longer than women shits. So he wrote it in the space of six weeks. I don't want to rubbish this cast. Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky in three days. Well, yeah, and you can tell. Yeah, but Rocky was the biggest grossing film of 1976. Mm -hmm. I... How successful was A Christmas Carol? Incredibly. I, I, <laughs> I watched Rocky, but it was, uh, it was skipping. It was a video that was like a VHS that was missing parts so i basically watched rocky but without any of the fight scenes <laughs> which makes it quite bleak because the thing people forget about the first rocky film is it's essentially like a gritty drama mm. about a poor guy who's down on his luck and is trying to woo a pet shop owner whose brother's an alcoholic yeah if you take the fights out that's what rocky wanted yeah it was really sad and i've never seen it <laughs> that's the only way in which i've seen that film uh, kind of like when I bought a um, a VHS, again, VHS copy of Silence of the Lambs from a charity shop. Uh, and the film was good up until the bit where Jodie Foster has broken into the, the basement 
and um you know she's it's very tense is jim gum in there still oh my god uh, and then it cut to a documentary about birds someone had <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious uh, you know bravo 10 out of 10 for yeah but honestly it took me years to find another copy to watch (laughs) it because this was like netflix wasn't i mean netflix was uh they would send you discs in the post that's what netflix was at this time i know do you know they only stopped doing that about a month ago really not joking yeah they've been continuously sending out discs this whole time as most of us have switched to streaming. Yeah. And yeah, they, there was a big hoo-ha about a month ago that they'd sent out their final disc. Aww. And it was Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> and half of it was a documentary about uh, avian migration. God damn it. Uh, I, <laughs> You know, I think I have still have some Netflix discs uh, in this bookcase behind me. Uh, it was... <laughs> um, what was I watching? Oh, Boardwalk Empire. Very good until season three. After that, Charlie Cox isn't in it anymore. And what is the point in watching it? We watched it for Steve Buscemi, who's as good looking as Charlie Cox. No. Um, (laughs) So A Christmas Carol was intended to be a social criticism of the UK, which very much was like all of his other works, if we're being honest. The story is, of course, uh, in which Michael Caine is visited by a variety of puppets in the night and upon waking decides (laughs) to be nicer to the puppets that work for him. It was based on his sister, his elder sister. They had a disabled son. And Tiny Tim was based on him. Have you read A Christmas Carol? Uh, I've watched it. <laughs> so have I. My favourite bit is where Doctor Who, he takes the child version of the Scrooge character forward in time mm-hmm. so that he can see what a bad person the old version of him has become. Mm-hmm. So that the Doctor can save Amy Pond and Rory. Yeah. Which is my way of saying, I haven't read it. I've just seen a Doctor Who version of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, which was good. But to be fair, it's a very, very good Doctor Who episode. Like, it's really good. And heartbreaking. One of the best. It really is, yeah. It's really sad. So despite his book, A Christmas Carol, being a massive success and one of his most famous works, he actually made very little money from this book. Uh, it's kind of like Fat Boy Slim with the Rockefeller skank. Um, <laughs> because he had a disagreement with the publisher. The publisher started producing illegal copies of the book and also because he'd agreed to a high fee to Lord Finesse and others whose tracks he'd sampled. <laughs> In 1851, it was not a good year for Charles. He suffered the loss of his daughter, Dora. Uh, His wife, Catherine, also suffered that loss. His father, John, also died in his mid-60s. Now, John had been sort of in and out of debtor's prison, and he kind of embarrassed Charles by asking his mates for money, which was kind of not cool. Seven years later, in 1858, he separated from his wife, Catherine, as he found that she was an increasingly incompetent mother and housekeeper and that after birthing 10 children she had become stout and matronly oh god i know have you seen how he aged yeah not well yeah fuck me she's had 10 kids what's your excuse dickhead stay right i kind of knew this i knew there was some like deep misogyny as you got later into his life i'm pretty sure doesn't he do the classic middle-aged man thing of like Banging a 21-year-old to... Uh, yeah, he was a proper bitch about it. Some lame attempt to recapture his youth. Yeah. yeah. So what he did was he publicly slandered his wife while striking up a relationship with the young actor Ellen. 
turning. A relationship, it was not clear whether it began before or after he separated from his wife. However, he went to great lengths to erase evidence that Ellen was in his life, which would suggest that everything was legit and we should stop asking questions about it. All right. It is unclear how the loss of his daughter, father and marriage affected Dickens, but the next three books he wrote were Bleak House, Hard Times... And, li- <laughs> and little Dorrit. It's like if uh, my marriage broke down and my next three stand-up specials were called Bleak Hour, Misery Set and... I Hate My Wife. <laughs> yeah, I Hate My Wife and Depressed Man, Live from Leeds. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. <laughs> so be- between 1836 and 1870, Dickens wrote about 15 novels and they would come out in monthly instalments for one shilling each, which was about £4. Uh, they were then released in novel form once they'd all been released uh, for you to binge watch. Queen Victoria liked his stories, but the low price, kind of low price, made them accessible to the sort of normal person. Uh, I mean, not the working classes, because you had to be able to read and uh school wasn't compulsory so you know can you imagine having to wait a month for another installment of a story well you say that but you have tv shows that end a season on a cliffhanger and then you've got to wait 10 months for the next part so if if anything dickens serialization is the start of how we understand and comprehend anything that is serialized whether it's books novels comics even films now because you know Marvel films, it's just like one ongoing story that never ends. To a certain extent, it's relatable. I guess so, but those episodes come out weekly. Can you... Oh, God, it takes so long to read a fucking book, is what I'm saying. I mean, this is a criticism of Dickens. Now, I've only read one book of his, which is Great Expectations, mm-hmm. and I really liked it. I think... We actually, we should briefly talk about what it is that is great about Dickens. The characters are so mm-hmm. vivid. Like, as soon as the character walks into a room in a Dickens novel, they're full of life and they really leap off the page and it's it's probably like his greatest skill as a mm-hmm. storyteller his weakest skill as a storyteller is brevity and this is because he they were serialized and he was being paid by of the course. word so they just go on they go on for fucking ever so you're enjoying being with the characters but yeah i could enjoy being with them for say 25 percent less of the runtime <laughs> yes i agree On the 8th of June, 1870, aged 58, Charles Dickens had a stroke at his home at Gad's Hill Place. Is it Higham or Higham? I don't know. I don't care. Fuck off, Kent. I say Higham because Higham's too close to Hyman. Yes, yeah. I don't like Kent. I just need you to know that. Why don't you like it? Because... The Garden of England. You know what? I had this discussion with Peter Brush the other day, right? And he said, yeah, they call it the Garden of England. But what they don't say is that garden is full of white goods. And dog shit. <laughs> I've just, I've never had a good gig in Kent. I knew, I knew that was coming, Kath. I knew it was going <laughs> to come from some bad history of comic performance down there. But I feel like you see the true side of people at these gigs. And it's not just been like, I've done poorly. I've come away from it. I didn't do very well. I can take that. But the people at these gigs have just been awful people. You know, like shouting stuff at you one of them an act nearly walks off because he kept wanking making wanking signs and stuff at her you know and you just that's like preferable to he kept wanking which i thought was what you're gonna well say. yeah um <laughs> actually we shouldn't joke about that because that did happen to what's that D- dutch comedian we know oh mickey overman 
Yeah, she, she some guy was masturbating in her Edinburgh show. Yes. That's weird, isn't it? Can you tell the men to sort it out? Something so <laughs> fucking weird. I've got a WhatsApp group with all men. Yeah. And I'm in it. I'll just send a message out. Stop wanking in front of my friends. Yeah, something weirdo. Wank about them, not in front of mm-hmm, them. Exactly. Please, for the sake of feminism. We don't need to know what's happening. Uh, so he, he died a day later after his stroke. He was halfway through writing Edwin Drood, which must have, been, must have been absolutely fucking infuriating for people who were invested in the series. Also quite good, as I've said, great expectations, too long. Mm-hmm. M- maybe this early demise did the readers of a Drood a favour. Possibly, but it'd just be like, you know, when everyone's like, for fuck's sake, George R.R. R. Martin, stop writing prequels, finish the book, you're old. <laughs> Please, it can't end like the TV series did. Good God. Yeah. George Martin is running a real risk of pulling off a, a repeat drood. He is. He was buried in Poets Corner uh, and remains buried in Poets Corner at Westminster Abbey. Uh, I've actually been to see him there because they briefly levied the entry fee for NHS staff if you could deal with the glares of the reception staff. They were furious at letting me in for free. Sources for this episode, the Circumlocution Office, Biography.com, Charles Dickens Info.com, Charles Dickens Page.com. Lots of Charles Dickens's stuff. So, Aidan, would you? Uh no. No. I feel like we for listeners as well, just because he broke up with his wife because of her looks, we should include a picture of him in his old age <laughs> you know just for a comparison this one actually isn't on his e-trust for vanity reasons i mean for listeners i'm looking at an image of a 50 year old eight-year-old man it's not tom cruise no so this guy hasn't really got a leg to stand on criticizing his wife for the crime of having aged yes we will of course put both of those images uh, up for you to have a look at and and just let us know uh, what you think, whether you'd fuck before and after. <laughs> so you're you're saying no? So Well, yes to before, no to after, no to personality. I just think, I think the misogyny is quite off-putting. Yeah. Uh, and I could maybe deal with the misogyny, but I cannot deal with the lack of a self-edit. And having mm-hmm. read Great Expectations, that thing could do with some pruning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a lethal combination of women hating and brevity hating. Yes. So it's a, a, a no. What about you, Kath? Yeah, it's going to be a no from me as well. Um, I think the misogyny, obviously. Uh, and you know what? Like, if he had spent years, all of his life, caring for himself and his looks, and I'd let myself go, sure, okay, whatever, you know. But he's not put the same amount of effort in. He's not put any effort in looking at that picture. He can't even trim his beard. No, he can't do it well. He's, he's got a very unkempt goatee. Yeah, he's got a comb over. He's got wrinkles. Has he not heard of anti-aging cream? <laughs> you know, is is it? He is younger than our parents, and he looks considerably older than them. He's only five years older than David Tennant. Fuck! And I still fancy David Tennant. I was watching the new Doctor Who episodes, as I keep banging on about. He just looks, he's a stunning human being. I know. He's in his 50s and he looks astonishing. Anyway, so it's a no from you? No from me as well? No from me. 
Sorry, Charles Dickens, you do not get on the biotap that astray. Yeah. And it's your own bloody fault. It is. Um, and he seems like a bit of a bit up himself, really. And also hasn't taught his kids how to deal with money. Like, no lessons learned. Just keeps passing that generational trauma right down. Again, on the subject of Doctor Who. <laughs> there is a very good episode of Doctor Who where the Doctor meets Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. But um, it does not uh, comment on all the things we've talked about here. What? It doesn't talk about him cheating on his wife? <laughs> no, he's mad. It's just him running away from, like, ghosts that are emerging from the Victorian gas network. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? It's insane. Who'd have thought Doctor Who was not a deep dive into the problems of misogyny in 19th century England? <laughs> well then, sucker dick, Charles Dick ends, <laughs> as my grandmother used to say. Another Christmas special in the bag. Uh, if you've enjoyed this and you have not listened to previous episodes, there's loads of them, including a last year's Christmas special, which was about St. Nicholas. And if you go into the bonus bang feed, if you want to pay for some extra episodes, there is several in there, including a mini Christmas bonus episode, which Kath did about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer mm-hmm. uh, and the history of that literary character. Yeah, would we have sex with a deer? <laughs> Who knows? We won't spoil it. You've got to go and listen to the episode to find that out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please share all our stuff on social media. Retweet us. Share our video clips to your Instagram stories. Also, we're going to be doing a live show Ooh. at uh, Leicester Comedy Festival. Uh, that is on Friday, the 9th of February. Yes. Is it on a Friday? It is a Friday, yes. Friday the 9th. I'll be doing a show 24 hours later in exactly the same location in exactly the same slot at the Globe with a, a guy called Pete Kinsella. We'll be doing a split hour of comedy, so we'll be doing 30 minutes of comedy each. Come down to that. Kath is also doing a show. Are you doing it on the same night as the yes. Hot Not Podcast? So your itinerary for Leicester Comedy Festival, write it down, listeners, is Friday, 9th February, half past seven. You're going to come and watch my show. It's called Please Just Give Me a Chance. Uh, very well refu- reviewed by Rolling Stone magazine uh, at the Edinburgh Festival. Come and give that a little watch. You watch. It was, yeah. Oh, nice. I, that really sounded like you were making that no, up. No, <laughs> no, genuinely was. Um, <laughs> and then uh, you get a little half hour break, uh, go and have a pee, go and get a drink, come back 9pm when you, you can come and watch Historical Hot or Not, The Globe, Leicester. That's 9 till 10. We'll wrap it up at 10. It's going to be a lot of fun. It is going to be uh, not Larry, but we, you know, we've, we've got some ideas to make it uh, not boring, solid history uh, <laughs> on a friday night and then on uh, saturday pop back over 9 p.m uh, the globe and watch watch a little bit of aiden and pete i guess pete. as well but aiden peter's a funny funny guy do you know pete Kinsella? yeah i know pete good guy yeah he's a fun guy isn't yeah he? you know he's done his time after the incident and uh I... <laughs> no i'm taking the piss he's not done anything uh he's a good man he looks like someone who might have done something. <laughs> Don't we all? Which is part of his comedy because Peter's a big, burly, tattooed guy, but he is an absolute teddy bear of a man. Mm-hmm. But a lot, he, a lot of his comedy stems from the fact that people in public don't seem to trust him, <laughs> even though he's probably the most trustworthy person you would ever likely to meet. Yeah, far more trustworthy than you. Oh, obviously. We won't say who we're doing the Leicester Square live episode about. Well, not Leicester Square, just Leicester. Sorry, Leicester Square. <laughs> We won't say who we're doing the Leicester show about, 
But if you consider the location at which it is being performed, you might be able to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Someone who has a historical connection to the area. Yes. I'll leave you to think on it. We will also have merchandise. We've got some pretty cool merchandise. We've got mugs. We've got, uh, we've got fridge magnets. We've got tote bags. Uh, I think we've still got a few condoms left. We've got some badges. We've got stickers. Oh, we've got so much blooming stuff, haven't we? We've got merch coming out of all available offices. Uh-huh. So, and on that note, you know, spread your legs, spread the word. And remember, it's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside of the coffin that counts. Thank you. Goodbye. See you in the new year, everybody. You have been listening to Historical Hot or Not, written and created by Aidan McCaffrey and Catherine Mather. The podcast art was by our good friend Richard Todd, and our theme music by excellent musician and also good friend David Eagle. We also have music by Ergo Bismus, that's a license from the Free Music Archive. If you've enjoyed us and you would like to donate to the cause, we would love you to do that also. You can find us at ko-fi.com forward slash hotnotpod and you can download bonus episodes of Historical Hot or Not from Acast Plus. The link is available on our link tree, linktree.com forward slash hotnotpod. Bye!